Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. You know, all of us have a, a worldview or a way of, of seeing the world. Right? We, we often like to say that in, in, in the world, the Enneagram, that there are nine pairs of glasses, you know, and, and we all assume that we're wearing the same pair, right? We all think we see the world the same. We assume it. That's why we, we are often confused by other people's behaviors, their thoughts, the, their feelings, their, their actions. We go, my gosh, why would anybody think, feel, or act that way? How can they see the world that way? When it's clearly X. Well, it's X through your glasses. But if you're talking to someone of another personality style, they're, they're really looking at the world in a completely different way. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to the program. I'm Michael John Cusick. Today on episode 16, it's part two of my conversation with my friend Ian Cron, whose latest book is The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey. Ian's previous books include Chasing Francis and the best-selling spiritual memoir, Jesus, My Father, The CIA, and Me. In addition to being a writer, Ian is a nationally recognized speaker, Enneagram teacher, psychotherapist, Dove Award-winning songwriter, and Episcopal priest. He draws on a wide array of disciplines, from psychology to literature and the arts, Christian spirituality and theology, all to help people enter more deeply into conversation with God and the mystery of their own lives. He and his wife Anne live in Nashville, Tennessee. In part two, during my conversation today, Ian and I discuss the crucial need for self-knowledge, the nature of the true self, the beauty of the gospel, and the counterintuitive idea that we grow in loving others as we grow in loving ourselves. So with no further delay, let's jump into part two of my conversation with Ian Cron on Restoring the Soul. It's very, very difficult to be compassionate without self-knowledge. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And by the way, I mean, <laughs> I mean just think of all the pastors— and leaders uh, that we've known either from a distance or personally who have crashed and made gigantic mistakes that surprised them when they happened. And it was because they really didn't know their capacity for self-deceit and didn't know who they were and what they were capable of. And... Um, if they'd only done the homework of getting to know themselves, it would have decreased the likelihood of their having had such a failure 
And would you also say that it's hard to be or impossible to be compassionate to others without compassion to oneself? Absolutely. If you're trying to be compassionate towards someone and you don't have compassion towards yourself, really, um, you're probably faking something. It's, it's probably not compassion. Um, maybe it's pity. Maybe it's, I'm not sure what it is, but it's not, it's not compassion. I think learning to be compassionate towards yourself is absolutely vital in the spiritual life. And of course, many Christians will, will object because they'll say, well, you know, if I'm compassionate toward myself, then I'm just going to give myself license to continue on in these, these sinful behaviors of mine. I need to be hard on myself and severe and, and uh, you know, activate that inner critic so that it can monitor my every thought, feeling, and action 24-7 and stop me from doing bad things. And what I would say to you is, is that just the opposite will happen, that, that when, you, when you activate that sort of inner severe critic— that vigilantly uh, stands over you and, and waiting to pounce on your every simple impulse or feeling or action, that what happens is, is that your errant behaviors, your misdirected desires, your sinfulness, if you will, will entrench, actually. You will begin to defend yourself against the voice, thereby entrenching the behavior or the, or the, um, the brokenness. Whereas if you look at yourself compassionately, if you look at your brokenness uh, with the, you, you've heard me say this, the eyes of the adoring mother as she looks at, as a, at an infant, um, if you do that, all of the games of your personality, all of your BS, all of that, just, you know, it just naturally begins to evaporate. And you find that you're, you begin to get a, a glimpse of your true self. Yeah. In order to make this a, a, a real Christian conversation, I'll need to quote a, a Bible verse. Go for but it, it makes me think of makes me think of Romans two, where it says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Yeah. Um, and I, I lived for fifteen years in my uh, faith life of beating myself up, criticizing myself, shaming myself, guilting myself, with hopes that that would make me somehow try harder and eventually get this yeah. life of. Uh, of being enlivened and enlarged, but it really is just the opposite. Yeah. In fact, it's very curious you should say that because I was thinking yesterday as I was getting ready to give a talk later this week, is there anywhere in the Bible that you can think of uh, where, where it says that the Father loved Jesus because he was perfect? I can't think of anything. Right. I mean, it's a sort of an obvious question, right? Like It's rhetorical. You, but there's no place in the Bible I could think of that said that that God loved Jesus principally because he was sinless. Now, that's an interesting idea to me. Like, what would make us think then that if God didn't hold Jesus to that standard, that he holds us to it? Hmm. I, I don't know. That, that strike, maybe everyone else has already figured that out, but I'm, I'm struck that it, it, never, it never says that, that oh, God so, you know, loved Jesus because... You know, Jesus was sinless. It just it's just because Jesus was. That's all. Yeah, this is my son in whom I delight. Yeah. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Um, yep. Well, isn't this the core of the good news? Right, this fact that that from day one we are wanted and accepted and embraced and delighted in, and we make the good news about all this other stuff. Yes, 
we do, and um, we do the the gospel a great disservice. You know, that's a that's a piece I think of why so many people in our culture are biased or suspicious of of Christians. You know, we we haven't we haven't done a great job of presenting a gospel of compassion, of love, um, of, yeah, I mean, it always seems to me, here's a good start when you want to say, you know, boy, welcome to church. By the way, you're born bad. <laughs> you're, you're fundamentally bad. So come on, welcome in. We'll have some coffee and talk about it for the next 30 years. <laughs> you know, I mean, right, it's like, right. wow, that, that's a, I actually just don't believe it. I, it, don't, it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, we, we've talked about this in great deal, and I, I'd like to go here for a minute in the conversation. Are you because, sure? Are you sure? Because I don't want to be defrocked as a priest from being. <laughs> no, I think this is one of the richest things you offer as a priest uh, is is your uh, lens through which you see God, which is a very Jesus shaped lens. Um, but sin. And this idea of, you know, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, I've come to see that as not a value judgment on our personhood, like we're bad from day one, but more that we're, that we're independent, that we're autonomous, and that because of our not understanding who God is and, and that we're safe, that we have to somehow fend for ourselves. Um, so right. I, I'd like you to put words to... What's the core of the gospel? So, if, if I were to say to you, so Ian, what is the good news? Oh, I can make it so simple that it's going to drive some people crazy. It's so simple. It's very. It's this: you're loved. That's it. You're loved. And and not I'm loved, but I need to do nope. something for God, or I'm loved, but I need to perform for God. No, nope. and and actually, a couple of years ago, I was interviewed. Um, at a festival where I was speaking, and someone asked me that, and I said, well, the answer is you're loved. And he said, oh, my gosh. He said, last week we, we interviewed Miroslav Volf, and that's what he said. And so I felt very validated <laughs> that the theologian well, Miroslav Volf had given the same answer well, I had. Well, he, he's obviously been reading your material. Yeah, I well, think. I'm sure that's not the case. Um, you wrote in your book uh, – because we, we talked about the lens of the gospel. You said most of us don't question the lens through which we see the world. Yes. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. You know, all of us have a, a worldview or a way of, of seeing the world. Right? We, we often like to say that in, in, in the world, the Enneagram, that there are nine pairs of glasses, you know, and, and we all assume that we're wearing the same pair, right? We all think we see the world the same. We assume it. That's why we, we are often confused by other people's behaviors, their thoughts, the, their feelings, their, their actions. We go, my gosh, why would anybody think, feel, or act that way? How can they see the world that way when it's clearly X? Well, it's X through your glasses. But if you're talking to someone of another personality style, they're, they're really looking at the world in a completely different way. Um, and when you appreciate that difference – you begin – that's one of the ways that you'll start to develop more compassion, right? You'll, you'll go, oh, wait a minute. The reason you do such and such or think such and such or feel such and such is because you, you see the world like this. Okay, so let me give you an yeah. example. Uh, if you're an eight, a challenger, you see the world as a dangerous place where 
um, the strong survive and the weak get taken advantage of. So put on a very tough and aggressive exterior and hide vulnerable and tender feelings so that you don't get betrayed. Um, and, of course, the, an eight also never wants to be in a position where they're being controlled by someone else, right? Because you see the world that way. Now, if, imagine for a moment, if you see the world that way, why, why you might be aggressive, combative, argumentative, um, uh, all these, you know, domineering. So I'm a four, right? Or, well, actually... Um, Let's let's take a two. We'll take you for example, right? The, yeah, take me. The, yeah, the helper or the giver. Like y- you see a world where you can't be loved unless uh, you're needed, right? Like, like you feel like okay, if, if I'm not needed, then I won't be loved. Uh, and even now, here's where we get to the darker side of of the two. Um, I want to be indispensable to people. So that uh, they'll meet my needs without my having to acknowledge them or express them, right? Because you know that, I don't want to that. Right? On. Yeah, because I, I don't want to be rejected or humiliated, right? So now compare an eight with a two, right? You're out there because you have this lens on. You know, you you, you see a world that won't love you unless you uh, fulfill it or meet its needs, other people's needs. And an eight, so you're you're you know emotional, you're you're vulnerable, you're showing you know, and you know an eight couldn't be more different than you. They couldn't see the world more different than you do, and so you know you meet each other, and you're just scratching your heads and can't figure each other out. But once you know what the underlying motivations of your behaviors are. That's when compassion and understanding and love begins to be possible. Absolutely. That is so helpful because uh, what, I, what I've done, and by the way, your, your description of a two is dead on. Um, what I've done is I've personalized without understanding, you know, that that person, <laughs> here's an extreme thing in my head, but, you know, that person hates me. That person thinks I'm an idiot, um, uh, you know, and, and the internal critic comes up or the other centered critic comes up and I dismiss the person. But that that knowledge and that being able to have that lens about myself and about them has been so powerful. Yeah. And I've shared this with you before, but in the teaching two years ago that you and Suzanne did, the thing that really changed my marriage was understanding me as a two, understanding Julianne as a one. And the example was given that you know you're married to a one if you're loading the dishwasher and mm-hmm. then they come along and rearrange it. Yep. And for, for years, you know, I would, I would react to that and feel uh, criticized and, and, and uh, dismissed. Like, you know, I didn't know how to load a dishwasher. And yet the way that Julianne as a one sees the world is that there's always a better way to do something. Yeah. And it has nothing, nothing to do with me. Right. It, it, the, the ones, the perfectionists, you know, or the reformer, depending on, on how you choose to see them, their, their attention is immediately drawn to, to whatever's wrong or can be improved. And they feel responsible or they feel this compelling urge to actually fix or correct whatever it is that they perceive to be wrong. And 
course, when they're unhealthy and they don't know the lens through which they're seeing the world, if they don't know themselves, right, what's happening here is they begin to think that their way is the only way of doing something, right? They, they begin to think like uh, they have a right to judge or criticize others because their way is the only way of doing things. And they're just unaware that simmering below the surface of their skin is this deep resentment that uh, others aren't doing their share to improve the world. Uh, they're not trying as hard as the one is. And um, what the one needs to work on, here a spiritual growth path example, what the one needs to, to really work on is is realizing that there there's not just one way of doing things, that not everything is black and white, um, right or wrong, that there you know, that, that life is more complicated than that, and that they can experience serenity in a world that is filled with error and disorder and that they don't they're not responsible to, to fix it all and that they don't have to worry about being blamed or punished if, if they make a mistake. I mean, this is amazingly rich stuff to begin to work on in your, your spiritual life if you know that that's your junk, you know? Yeah, it's, a, it's like a diamond that has so many different facets to how it can, it can help us grow. Um, I want to go back to when I asked the question about beginning to discover one's true self. You talked about community. You said that you were a believer in, in, in counseling and spiritual direction, and so, so am I, since I am a counselor and a spiritual director. But one of the things I loved about The Road Back to You is that you tell so many personal stories, and you you share the story at the beginning and well into the book of, of a lot of conversations that you have with people. And, and one of these conversations was with Brother Dave. Mm-hmm. And he mentioned that he, he, you, you had had a, a previous uh, not-so-positive experience in revealing to somebody about the Enneagram. And he said, it's too bad that they discouraged you from learning the Enneagram. It's full of wisdom for people who want to get out of their own way. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. The person who wants to get out of their own way, who is um, tripped up on their own junk. And it all ties into this idea of self-knowledge. But comment on that phrase, because that stood out. Yeah. Well, I mean, isn't that just intuitive to your own journey and I think to probably your listeners that uh, it's like James Hollis, the, the Jungian psychotherapist says, who you and I both appreciate so much. He, I'll, I'm going to absolutely kill this quote, but he says something to the effect of, have you ever noticed that you are the one character who appears in every single scene in the ongoing soap opera you call your life? <laughs> right i love i love james Hollis. yeah and so therefore don't you think you might have something to do with whatever's going wrong you know like like aren't you're something about you is getting in the way of your own spiritual progress you know of becoming your own truly individuated best self right we're always tripping over some you know, actually, like, for example, someone, good friend called me the other day and and said on the phone, I mean, just in a very funny but kind of, you know, resigned way. Uh, she said, you know, every time I open my mouth, I can't help but say something that offends somebody, you know. 
It's like, you know, and she was just laughing. She says, I don't know. I just can't seem to stop it. I've tried a million, you know. And I, I got to thinking to myself, that, you know, there's, by the way, there's an example, right, where you're like, my gosh, I keep getting in my own way. Um, I, so I've had this thought again recently that, and it saddens me, and maybe this is part of the message I would, would want people to, to know and hear. I think many of us unwittingly, without knowing it, have given up on ourselves. And that's very, very sad. Um, that we've become resigned to the, the fact that, oh, I'm, you know, it's never going to be any different. I'm, I'm never going to know any change or healing in this area of my life. Or I'm always going to be tripping over myself. And I, I guess the thing I would, would hope that actually working with the Enneagram and would do, among others, possibilities, is that it would revive people's hope and change. Because I think there's so many people who've given up on themselves. That is such a, a worthy goal and an awesome desire. I have, I've called that um, the this is good as it gets belief right. where people give up. Yeah. And, and isn't that what a restored soul or a transformed and enlivened being is all about is that there's, yep. there's more that change is possible, that these deep longings and desires that we have in our heart for, for more life, that that can somehow be accomplished. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, uh, experiencing completeness is, um, you know, to, you know, I think it was Carl Rahner who said that um, uh, everyone dies an unfinished symphony. And I think we have to anticipate that that, that is the case. You know, we, we will die unfinished symphonies. Um, but symphonies nonetheless. And I uh, think that that's something we make peace with. But it doesn't mean that we should slow our or dampen our desire to continue to work on that on that piece uh, so that it can be as beautiful and as close to completion as it can become in this life. Yeah, there's that paradox again, the idea that the more I accept that I am incomplete and that I'll never be fully complete in this life, the more free we are to become who we're meant to be. Yeah, in fact, I don't know what it is about quotes today, but this is like quote day with Mike. Um, it's like <laughs> I have that effect on Paul, people. Paul Tillich, right? The theologian Paul Tillich, you said. Wait, wait, wait. Not Paul Tillich who manages the Starbucks that, near my no, house? No, not the same guy. Not the same okay. guy. Maybe a great, maybe a great grandfather there. Of, but Tillich said, you know, that the gospel, in, I think I'm not sure if he says that this is the gospel, but it's to accept that you've been accepted, though you are unacceptable. Yeah, I struggle a little bit with it, but but I appreciate the sentiment there, right? That yeah, you know, if we could learn to accept that we're accepted, though, well, maybe if he means it this way, in our own eyes, we are unacceptable. Yeah, that's a great uh, segue to the last thing I wanted to talk to you about because we're going to need to wrap up just for time constraints, but. The last chapter of your book uh, is called, or at least part of the title is, So Now What? What's, what's your hope in that chapter uh, as people have 
read through the introduction, the nine different numbers. I think the second part of the chapter title is, So Now What? The Beginning of Love. Yeah. I really want people to grow in in compassion. And, you know, it's a funny thing. Um, we don't receive great instruction about compassion in the Christian tradition. And if you want to find great instruction on it, I would just encourage you to go to the Buddhists. I mean, uh, Buddhists actually teach a more clear and Christian understanding of, of compassion. They have a language compassion that I think is remarkably gospel. It you know resonates as continuous with the gospel, not not in conflict with it. But I want people to to, to experience self compassion for the first time, perhaps to therefore experience and practice compassion, extending compassion towards others. And I I think. You know, there's so, you know, we could argue that, I guess, that there's so little self-compassion and compassion in the world that it's becoming a national security threat. I mean, it's, there's, there's, there's just so little of it in the, in the marketplace, and we've lost the vocabulary of compassion even in the church. And to do that, I think we need to know and understand others. I mean, I think love is very difficult to do to love somebody if you don't understand them and in fact you could argue that it's dangerous because if you don't understand the other then you actually may love them in ways that damage them i mean your love might be the wrong kind of love it may be what you think love would be or should be but it's actually not the love that person needs and so it's misapplied. It's the right medicine, wrong person. And, you know, when you learn about someone else's way of seeing the world, what their personality is like, and you understand that, then you'd be able to, you begin to be able to say, ah, this is the kind of love that you need and the compassion that you need. And then we start to see that uh, in that atmosphere of acceptance and wisdom that you really can begin to love the other in a way that makes it possible for them to experience transformation. So many good thoughts, so many rich thoughts, um, many of which are communicated in various ways in your brand new book, The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey. Ian Cron, thanks so much for coming on the program today. Yeah, it's a blast. Thanks, Michael. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com. dot